this talk is the happiness of morality. The Buddhist path is a path of happiness. And this is something that's always important for me to remember why I'm following this path. Following this path because I want to know happiness, happiness of heart. Right from the beginning in his teachings, uh, in his instructions to his students, which include, of course, monks and nuns, laymen and laywomen throughout the centuries, uh, the Buddha taught the path of happiness. Uh, right from the beginning, he taught his students how to know the happiness of heart. Uh, and, uh, of course, the easiest way, he said, for them to know the happiness of heart was to practice generosity. So we, the path always begins with the practice of generosity, uh, in part because, as the Buddha said, it's the easiest way to begin to open the heart. And we begin to know the happiness of the heart by practicing generosity. We begin to know the happiness uh, that uh, is available to us in following this path, the happiness that's available to us as human beings through practicing generosity. Second thing the Buddha taught uh, uh, that uh, we uh, practice uh, in the in an effort to uh, know happiness of heart, and of course, you know, each of these elements of the path uh, lays the path out uh, and leads to the next, and uh, enables us to develop uh, the qualities that are going to enable us to. Uh, know a, a true happiness, a happiness that uh, is reliable, uh, and to live in a way uh, that we're able to, uh, to, to know this happiness. So the second element of, of the path is uh, the training, the development of ethical conduct, uh, morality, sometimes called virtue. The Pali word is sila. Uh, the development of ethical conduct of sila brings about happiness of heart. So I want to talk about that today a little bit. Uh, basic precepts for uh, the cultivation of sila, of morality, are the uh, precepts that we just chanted. Uh, I undertake the training to refrain from the killing of all living beings, from stealing, from illicit sex, from false and harmful speech, and from taking intoxicants that cause uh, heedlessness. Oftentimes in his teachings on sila, uh, the Buddha includes eight elements of sila, uh, which include the four bodily actions uh, to refrain from killing, stealing, illicit sex, and taking intoxicants. And then uh, he includes four verbal actions of our action, for verb, bodily action, physical action, verbal action. So in addition to false speech, he includes in uh, the harmful actions that uh, we seek to refrain from in the service of knowing a greater happiness, uh, we seek to refrain from false speech, but also divisive speech, abusive speech, and idle speech. So these practices of uh, moral training uh, are practices of non-harming. We're learning
learning to uh, develop the training of non-harming. We're learning to practice non-harming uh, in terms of harming ourselves and in terms of harming, of course, others. So this is one of our most profound capacities as a human being. This is one of our most profound. You know, this is you know, Dharma talks are you know food for thought, things to reflect on. You know, and this is something that's really important for us to reflect on. Uh, and of course, this is why we we chant, and this is why we offer Dharma talks. And as Dharma students, there's certain things that we learn to reflect on. Uh, one of our most ca profound capacities as a human being is the capacity that we have to practice non-harming. It's one of our great blessings, one of the great blessings that we've been bestowed with as human beings, this capacity to practice non-harming. <clears throat> as human beings, we've been blessed uh, with this human mind and this human heart. You know, this is this is what we've been blessed with, with, which, you know, the beings in the realm just under us, the animal realm, don't have this human mind and this human heart, this capacity that the human mind and the human heart uh, allows us for non-harming, for compassion, for love. This is what separates us from, uh, from the animals, from the realm just below us. Of course, it's a very thin line, right? It's a very thin line. You don't need me to tell you that. Just turn on the TV. It's a very thin line. You know, if we don't learn to use the mind and the heart skillfully, we act like animals. You know, we descend into the animal realm. And I'm talking about in this life. So one of the great blessings greatest blessing that we have as a human being is the capacity to practice non-harming. One of the things that Tanisa Rubiku uh, often, often, often uh, explains is that you know, we have this capacity to practice non-harming, to live with love and compassion towards others and ourselves, but it has to be developed. I mean, that should be kind of apparent if you look at the world. Well, why are some people killing and stealing and others aren't, you know? Uh, uh, you know, largely that's because, uh, you know, we, we, we don't uh, follow through on our capacity for non-harming because we don't, haven't developed those skills. We haven't developed that capacity. That capacity has to be developed, has to be developed. It's not until stream entry, the first level of awakening, that the capacity for non-harming, for uh, being able to uh, follow the precepts and adhere to the precepts uh, unequivocally is fully developed. Stream entry. You know? So we're all in this process of developing our capacity for non-harming for compassion, for love. So one of the great, one of the marks of stream entry is that uh, that we are fully developed in 
ethical conduct. So, you know, stream entry, you know, those are, you know, that's the first level of awakening, first level of wisdom. So, uh, the uh, degree to which we have uh, developed our capacity to practice non-harming is really uh, the degree to which we've developed in wisdom. We have a lot of ideas about what wisdom is, you know? And this is a good, this is one of the most important markers of what wisdom is, you know, is that we've, we're developed in our capacity for non-harming. We understand, you know, at stream entry, you understand that breaching a precept is, uh, is bad for you, is bad for you. And it's sort of like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Be not because Dubinin said, the Buddha said, I read it in the book, I chanted a million times, but because you know, you've developed that wisdom. That's the development of ethical conduct. It's a development of understanding in the heart. And when you get to stream entry, that wisdom is developed to the point where you really can't. I mean, you might, you know, your past karma might, you know, inadvertently throw you into saying something, lying or doing something, but, you know, you absolutely are opposed to uh, engaging in unethical conduct, you know, and, and the idea of it is so, uh, there's, a, there's a quality of utter disenchantment or dispassion around it. You just, I don't want to do that. Why would I do that? But to get to that level of wisdom is a training. So we just chanted. Anatipata, Veramani, Sikapadam, Samadhiyami. I undertake uh, the training to refrain from the killing of living beings. The word Sikapadam means training. You know, it's a training that we're going through. Uh, we undertake this training. So do we understand the depth of this blessing that we've been given, this blessing uh, that we have this capacity to practice non-harming? And understanding these blessings that we've been given, do we make an effort to develop our, 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 most, our most treasured and, and, and most beneficial capacities that we've been given as human beings? And there's a lot of capacities that we try to develop as human beings, right? You know? Uh, this is, this is one of the greatest gifts that you have and one of the greatest capacities that you have. Are we making an effort to fully develop it? Or are we more interested in developing other things? It's not that there's anything wrong with other things. But it is a question, to some extent, given the paucity of time, uh, you know, and the need to be able to apportion our time or prioritize our time, it is a question of priority. In the Buddhist teaching, you know, this is right at the top of the scale in terms of priority, in terms of developing uh, your capacities as a human being. Now, of course, you know, this practice, this training is one that, to some extent, uh, in the West, as, as you know, and to some extent in the East, you know, in the Dharma, in the Buddhist world, has lost uh, a lot of its influence. 
a lot of the reason that's given why the teaching on morality or the training in morality and ethical conduct is underemphasized or under-prioritized or not prioritized is that uh, as Westerners we tend to have a negative view of uh, moral uh, standards perhaps because we've had past experiences and religions that we were brought up in that may have seemed punishing or there were forms of discipline or they were hypocritical you know you know the, this person in my church or my temple or whatever you know preached you know morality but you know but they were doing all these other things or whatever so uh, so you know sort of this bias that's that ostensibly developed in the West is you know we don't really practice we don't really get involved or as teachers or as Dharma communities or spiritual communities, we're not going to really prioritize uh, the training in ethical conduct because people have had a bad experience with it in the past. And you know, my my attitude about that has has always been that's not a good enough reason. Yeah, that's not a good enough reason. Uh, yeah. The problem isn't ethical conduct. The problem is maybe people that were trying to teach it or had ideas about it. So, uh, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, the, the, one of the things that, you know, has taken us, you know, we all, I mean I, I mean, I have that to some extent, we all have these biases toward ethical conduct, uh, the practice of ethical conduct, the training that might get us in the way of prioritizing it. So, uh, these are things to kind of watch for in the mind. We also just might take it for granted or we don't think it's that important, right? You know, let me get on to the really important stuff, working with the emotions. I really want to work on the emotions or my, you know, my, my, my trauma or whatever. You know, of course those things are really important. You know? uh, but you know, because those things are important doesn't mean that uh, you know, the practice of ethical conduct isn't, isn't important. What I would submit to you is if you really want to develop you know, your ability to understand your emotions, you really need to develop ethical conduct, and that ultimately your ability to understand and have a skillful relationship to your emotions uh, is in the service of being able to practice non-harming. You know, if you're not so angry at your partner, you're not going to lash out at her. You know? So, uh, you know, it's sort of another mark of wisdom, you know, you know, understanding the importance of the training in ethical conduct. We tend to think that, well, I don't need to make an effort to develop ethical conduct. I need to make an effort maybe to develop concentration or wisdom. So we tend to give short shrift to it. It's not like maybe we don't have a negative view of it, but you know, it's kind of like I'm not going to spend that much time on it. So what we're doing, of course, is giving short shrift to one of the most profound blessings that we have as a human being. We've been given this incredible gift, but we're kind of not really acknowledging it or taking advantage of it.
you know, our tendency, again, maybe that we don't prioritize this aspect of the training in our Dharma practice. We don't put an effort into developing it. So, uh, you know, really, in many ways, the heart of this talk is, is to offer an encouragement uh, to prioritize uh, the development of ethical conduct to uh, help you understand or begin to reflect on the importance of it. Now, of course, prioritizing it starts with a resolve. You know, I make a resolve to, to practice ethical conduct, you know, and to develop my ethical conduct and to really look at where I am and see if I can develop it further. You know, the chanting is good because the chanting, you know, is a way of stating resolve. If you go to a monastery, you know, you know, you're, you know, you're chanting these things. You know, you're hearing about these things all day long. You know, in our classes, in the past, in person, uh, you know, you know, for many years, you know, we in every class we chanted the refuges and the precepts. You know, so it was right there every time you sat down over on 14th Street for our class. You know, we were going to chant the refuges and the precepts. So at least on that level, you know, we were considering having this resolve. So the practice of ethical conduct then begins with resolve uh, and then putting these actions into practice and being heedful. You know, being heedful. It's a practice of heedfulness, of wise attention. You know, is the action that I'm taking, you know, in breach of a precept or is it unskillful? What am I doing? What are the consequences of what I'm doing? You know, looking at our actions, paying attention to our actions, bringing wise attention in the service of understanding the consequences. Not intellectually, but through seeing, you know, reflecting on the consequences in the short term when we're taking an action. What are the consequences of, of telling this lie? What are the consequences in the long term? Ultimately, the precepts, uh, morality is purified through, and all skillful action is purified through understanding the long-term consequences, not just the short-term consequences, right? So if you think of something as ostensibly simple as telling a lie, you know, you know, there might be a short-term benefit. You, know, you get something that you want because you told a lie, but what are the long-term consequences? or if it's if taking intoxicants, is that short-term consequence. We all know about that, or most of us probably do, I certainly do. You know, but the long-term consequences can be quite pernicious. So it's all about paying attention. And you know, there's this element, this came up in the class, I thought it was a good question a few weeks ago, about compunction or remorse. Uh, you know, that's always a tricky thing. Uh, you know, the Buddhist certainly speaks about the compunction that we feel when we breach a precept or we take an unskillful action. To me, what that really means in large part, it's not, you know, of course, you know, there's a, there's a big difference between compunction and self-judgment, right? Now, like, you're bad or I'm bad, I'm bad. You know, what really compunction is, is that we look at our actions and we consider the consequences. Once we, you know, that that's really what compunction is, or uh, you know, 
skillful remorse is considering the consequences of our actions. People who uh, who are blatantly uh, unskillful and uh, are exceedingly immoral in their actions, don't consider the consequences. It's sort of like, I killed somebody, what's the big deal? You know, or I'm not going to look at that. You know, or I, you know, I, you know, you know, had sex with somebody who's engaged in a, is, is in a relationship or whatever, and, you know, their partner doesn't, didn't give consent. You know, what's the problem with that? You know, so... You know, compunction is, is, is reflecting on, you know, or that's not a problem, right? That's not a problem. So compunction is, well, let me think about this, you know? Let me begin to consider this possibility. It's not about I'm bad or you're bad. So... This prioritizing of ethical conduct, you know, when it becomes something that's important to us and we try to live in accord with these moral principles and we really try to develop them, uh, you know, the more we're able to prioritize virtue, sila, uh, the more it has a karmic effect, an outward effect. Our actions have an effect. They have an effect on the people who are near to us and even beyond that, you know, and, and, and in part, you know, this is something that I, you know, certainly I think about as a teacher, but I, but I think it's relevant for all of us, you know, in part as uh, we give more importance and acknowledgement to morality, you know, that has a ripple effect, right? You know, so, you know, and of course this is the kind of thing, you know, parents want to teach their kids, uh, but you know, not everybody's a parent and has that, you know, opportunity to teach their kids. Uh, but uh, if we're beings for whom virtue is important, then, you know, the more beings for whom virtue is important uh, there are, you know, this has a ripple effect into the world. So, uh, you know, if there were more beings who uh, not killing was important, the world would be a completely different place. You know, because there's being most beings. You know, killing other beings is, is you know, they 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 may think it's immoral. A lot of people don't. You know, and and at the very least, most people aren't prioritizing it as something that they find important. You know, there's a lot of other things like what's on Netflix next week that are more important. You know, I mean, killing is a huge issue. <laughs> to say the least, you know? But most people don't find it that important. You know, maybe, you know, if they're having a political argument or something, you know? And, you know, when it's, I mean, I could go way far afield on this, but as is my want, because, uh, you know, usually when we start talking about killing, when I, I give talks about the precepts and people will ask, well, what about the roaches in my apartment, you know, and the, and, and the insects? Yeah, I mean, those are things I think you should consider about, reflect on, but really reflect on killing other people. You know, really reflect on killing other people. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people that killed, have killed other people. 
and, and probably most of you know people. I mean, I grew up in the 60s. I had friends who went to Vietnam, you know, good friends, you know, uh, you know and, and killed other people. Uh, I know most of my relatives in my father's generation. My father wasn't in the war, but my uncles were, you know. Uh, I mean, this is something that's, you know, going on a lot in the world. I mean, I have one of my vivid memories of high school is sitting in the cafeteria with a couple of my buddies. You know, when I was in high school, there was still a draft. The Vietnam War was still going on. I remember having this conversation. Are we going to go? You know, we're, we're going to get drafted. Are we going to get drafted? If we get drafted, what are we going to do? Are we going to go to Canada? Or are we going to go and fight and kill people? You know? You know? So... You know, this, these, are, these are really important things for us to reflect on and, 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 and think about as being important, as being important. You know, what, if, what, if, what if everybody or a much greater percentage of people, you know, killing was something that was really an important issue, you know, in the world? But it's just not enough important enough of an issue, you know? So gone far afield here, uh, but not really, not really. This is what I'm talking about, you know? I mean, this is what, you know, because you could say the first precept, oh, that doesn't apply to me. First precept doesn't apply to me. I don't kill other be uh, human beings. You know, maybe it applies to me in terms of insects, you know? But when, but when you really prioritize, you know, ethical conduct, then these things become really important to us. And, and, and when they become important to us, it has a ripple effect into the world. A profound ripple effect. So as, as ethical conduct becomes more developed, it becomes more wholehearted. You know, we just don't follow the precepts, and this is kind of what I'm talking about. We don't follow the precepts, we don't engage in moral action, uh, we don't refrain from immoral action because the teacher told us to. Uh, or because, you know, we know that we should, we do because there's a greater quality of intent. You know, it's wholehearted. This is something that Taya Jones would say, would talk about a lot. You know, all the people, you all come to the monastery, but, you know, you know and, you're, and you're chanting the precepts, but, you know, it's just like you're going through the motions. You know, as, 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 your, as your virtue becomes more developed, it becomes more wholehearted. There's a greater quality of intent. You know, and that intent is informed by compassion. You know, so we can, you know, we can develop that quality that's in the heart. But again, it has to be developed. That compassion in the heart has to be developed. We develop it by setting intention. You know, all that we are begins with our thoughts. So much of what we talk about in this group is is developing wholehearted intent. I'm going to follow these precepts. I'm going to follow these precepts out of compassion. I'm not going to kill, I'm not going to lie out of compassion, not just because I know I'm supposed to or I don't want to get reborn as a squirrel, you know? I'm going to do, do that out of compassion for myself and all beings. So when we follow these precepts and when we develop in moral action uh, this practice of sila, uh, it's joyful. It's joyful. It brings about happiness of heart. It brings about happiness of heart. So that's the thing that, you know, we, we perhaps don't understand. You know, that's why I entitled this talk, The Happiness of Morality. 
because the practice of sila leads to happiness of heart. I mean, one of the ways that Tanisara Bhikkhu puts it is we feel good about ourselves. We actually feel good about ourselves when, we, when we're able to follow the precepts. We recognize our goodness. Our goodness is found, again, so profoundly in our capacity for non-harming. When we practice non-harming, when we prioritize it, we feel good about ourselves. We recognize our goodness. You know, there's a happiness in expressing our goodness. Is it happiness in expressing our goodness? You know, I remember, you know, over thirty years ago, you know, when I when I put down the alcohol and the drugs, you know, the first year that I was sober, was so difficult. I mean, I you know, it was like I always say it's like it was one of the most difficult years of my life. You know, because up until that point, I had depended on it, and. Uh, you know, I was 35 years old, and it was really difficult to, to do it. It was also one of the most joyful years of my life, you know, because I was reacquainting myself with my goodness. You know, I was reacquainting myself with my goodness. I, I began to be able to express my goodness and know my goodness, and it was so joyful, as difficult as it was. So this level, so this practice of non-harming, following the precepts, is really the, I, I say, level one uh, in uh, skillful action, level one in uh, moral action. Uh, level two, I would say, we call the practice of, of non-cruelty, non-cruelty uh, in terms of moral action. So refraining from actions that are cruel. Because So there's some actions that are are uh, you know blatantly and most egregiously harmful. Those are those five precepts. There's other actions that we take that might not be pre breaches of precepts, but they but they're but they're imbued with cruelty. So so I think you know I, I think that this is just important to talk about. I'm not going to talk about it at length because uh, I've already spoken quite a bit. Uh, but you know it, you know. In, 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 in developing the heart, we learn to refrain from these actions that are imbued with cruelty, actions of body, speech, there's a lot of things that we can say using our mouth that are cruel. And then of course on the more refined level, thought, the thoughts of cruelty that we have about others, you know, ourselves. Of course, you know, the refraining from Cruelty, practicing non-cruelty, uh, you know, is is part of the process of the development of kindness. So, what is our commitment to non-harming? What's our commitment to non-cruelty? The Buddha said, "Our happiness depends on our actions." more we understand this, this is the law of karma, our happiness depends on our actions. You know, our wisdom is found in the degree to which we understand that. You know, so refraining from harmful actions, refraining from cruel actions are essential to our happiness. Essential to our happiness. There really isn't a greater happiness in this life if we're not uh, making an effort in the service of refraining from harmful actions and actions that are imbued with cruelty. 
So knowing this, knowing that our happiness depends on our actions is, is wisdom. That's wisdom. You know, we've been doing more in-person classes lately. Uh, you know, we've been meeting in person in New York for a little over a year. We've been having some day-long retreats. When I was in Berlin, we, we uh, it was a while ago now, but we had some in-person classes. And, uh, you know, as we've been meeting more in person, and, and I, it's not the only reason, but uh, why I felt like I wanted to talk about uh, morality and why I've been thinking about it more lately, is I've just been reminded, being in community, in person, of the importance of sila, and as a Dharma teacher, the importance of teaching it. You know, so much of the teaching I've done over the last three years has been online, and it will continue to be online to some extent, of course. But, you know, when you're online, you're not really taking action so much. I mean, there's some action. You know, I always talk about the action of listening, right? You know? And there's little things you can do online, like keeping your cameras on. Everybody here's got their camera on. That's great, you know. Or most most everybody does. You know, I know not everybody can always keep it on, but that's you know a, a very small point in in, in in terms of what we're discussing. But you know, when you're when you're in community, when you're with other people, there's more action. You know, it's more speech action in particular. More you know verbal action. Uh, and, and the consequences of action are more, you know, seem more uh, apparent, right? You know, I mean, you know, I mean, Dharma communities are, are, are based on, uh, the foundation for a Dharma community is, is sila, is the five precepts, right? Uh, you know, in order to be a community member, that's sort of like the number one requirement is that you follow those precepts when you're at least in the group. But it's, you know, so that, you know, the, 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 this, what it is to be in a community is, is, is much more uh, uh, evident when you're in person. So as, uh, you know, even something like, you know, like in an art, you know, I mean, communities are based on guidelines, you know, you have boundaries. So, you know, for householders, you know, in terms of, practices that the Buddhas gave for community, you know, five precepts, but, you know, for monks, there's 227 precepts. So thank God I didn't give a talk on that today, because we'd be here until Thursday. You know, but we have little rules that we try to follow, uh, you know, to help create community, you know, in our, you know, in classes, right? You know, that also creates boundaries. So like coming to the class on time, you know, but that, you know, I mean, I'm just telling this as a little bit, you know, this isn't meant to be an indictment of anybody, but the, the, maybe it is a little bit. But, uh, uh, but you know, like coming to the class late is much more apparent in person than if you're online, right? You come into the class late, you open the door, you come into the room, why is that? You're online, people don't know the person came in late, you know, I mean, you, you, or it has this, that's sort of like how the difference in many ways, right? just using that as an analogy. So uh, as we've been back more in person, I've just said, you know, I really should be talking more about sila. You know, in the past I used to talk about a lot. In our classes we always chanted the precepts. Uh, so, but this, this is like one of the challenges of community, right? 
you know, challenges of being in community, in particular in person, you have to look more at your actions, right? And you have to kind of be a community member and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm following these precepts, I'm following, uh, you know, uh, I'm, uh, you know I'm, I'm with the group, uh, you know, it's important that, uh, you know, my actions affect these other people who are coming here, you know, and their actions affect me. So there's a challenge in that. There's a challenge in that, in being in a group, in a community, in, in person. There's a challenge in that. And there's a great joy in it. There's a great joy in that. There's a profound joy in being in community. And it's the joy of my life, is being in community with others, in, in the Dharma. There's a great joy in that. can fully, and it is a great joy in being in community. Why? Why is there a great joy in being in community? Well, there's different aspects to that. But what I would say today is that there's a great joy in community because it offers us an opportunity to fully and truly express our goodness, our capacity for non-harming when we're in community with each other, you know, in a Dharma community where you know, Dubinin's going to yell at you if you're not, you know, if you come drunk to the, to the class. You know, we have a capacity, you know, in community, uh, we can fully express our capacity for non-harming and for non-cruelty, for compassion and for love for one another. So there's great joy in being in community and this effort that we make to be part of a community. There's great happiness. You know, there's happiness of heart. So we'll just end there for today.